0: Grab your Bibles and your outlines that is in the bulletin, and we're going to be continuing for one more week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We've been looking at uh, this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is uh, articulating and that's inaugurating into uh, the lives of His people. And uh, for the first eight weeks, we focused in on upside-down attitudes, looking at the Beatitudes of what it is to live the blessed life. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at now the actions that God, God and in fact Christ is calling us to. And over the last couple of weeks, as we've looked at these actions, we have learned that following Jesus is not an easy thing. I know there are a lot of preachers out there that say that following Jesus is easy. It's not. It's not easy at all. It, it it comes easy in the sense that you and I don't me- have to merit anything to receive salvation; that it's by God's grace. But the life of sanctification is downright hard at times. It's it's filled with failures at times, and 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 times where victory seems to be out of our grasp. But but praise God, He has given us the victory in Christ Jesus to be able to find victory, and Jesus has been teaching us over and over again what it means to live obedient lives, and it, it's only going to get harder, and right when we think we've achieved a level of holiness that me, other men tell us is okay, is good enough, Jesus seems in this sermon to say, it's not good enough. Let me expand what it means to be an obedient follower of mine, and so we will see today that, that what Jesus is calling us to is not is not something that is easy, but here's the thing. When we are filled by the Spirit of God and when we are walking in fellowship with Christ, Jesus says this as difficult, if you will, as obedience is, He tells us that His burden is light. And that we who are heavy laden can run to him and cast all of our cares on him because he cares for us. And it is there out of that place of delight that obedience becomes a whole lot easier. It's not a duty. It's not drudgery. It is a real delight for us, the followers of Jesus Christ, to hear his words and to respond in a way that is obedient to him. Now, this sermon, like so many other ones, folks, is one that will cause us to desire nothing more than to push Jesus' words somewhere else away from us. Now one of the things that a sermon like this will do, and no doubt, is have us look down the pew, look at someone else and say, boy, this sermon is a sermon that my husband needs to hear, or the guy in the pew down the row from me needs to hear, or my teenager needs to hear. And, and I wanna just stop us for a moment, and I want us to remember that it was easy for the Pharisees to push other people's issues and struggles, uh, or their issues and struggles onto other people. And what Jesus wants to teach us is he wants to do some work in our lives. And so, so many of us are so quick to push away the teaching that Jesus is going to share today, to, if you will, wiggle out of being called to the carpet. Far too many of us are so quick to uh, rather live by the Pharisees' interpretation of the law and look down our proverbial, pharisaical noses at others. We need to see that Christ's words are for all of us this morning. And so I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to ask that you just stand with your eyes closed. I want you to listen to what God's Word says, and I want us to just have a moment uh, of quiet with Christ. I want Christ to teach Each of us, as if we are sitting there listening for the very first time on that Sermon on the Mount, to listen and not to quickly take these words and apply it to someone else's life, even though it may be needed. The person down the road may need this, but you and I need it as well. And so listen to these words, and then I'm going to give us some time just to to quietly prepare our hearts this morning. Here's our text for the morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Just meditate on those words for a moment. Prepare our hearts, Lord Jesus. Prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, I am so thankful you are the preacher of this sermon. Because I have failed in this area far more than I would ever want to admit. And I, in my 37 years, knows that, that my past is, is filled with, at times, uh, struggles like this. And I, and I know, Lord, that I'm not the only one in this room that struggles with, with these things. And I am so glad that you sent your son, Jesus, who at 33 years of age, didn't live a life like Tim, but lived a life of perfection. Was sinless, even in the area of lust. Though he was tempted, he did not give occasion. Lord, we praise you for that, for your perfect life. We praise you that you're the one who gets to take the pulpit now and preach to every one of us, including myself. Lord, there are some of us today who will say right away, this is Christmas time. Let's talk and celebrate the good things. Let us talk and celebrate the warm and fuzzy aspects of the story that that we love so dear. Let us us take a break and can't we just allow uh, some time just to enjoy the holidays. Lord, I have been struck this week that sin does not take a holiday. That the devil doesn't take a break. That even this week there have been areas of great uh, hurt and pain from many of us giving in to our lusts. So Lord, I pray that we would uh, just take this moment and we would sit under your teaching and, and allow Christmas to come next week as we open your word and celebrate that wonderful truth. But, but now in this, that you would do business in our hearts and our minds. Lord, Lord, let us not push it away. Lord, let's not say this is a man thing or, or, or a young person thing. Lord, let us just sit under your teaching because you know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, teach us, guide us, lead us to the way of obedience. Empower us by your Spirit to do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In June 1642, in the Puritan town of of Boston, a crowd gathered to witness an official punishment. A young woman was about to take a stand. Hester Prynne was her name, and she had been guilty of one of the most heinous offenses in Boston in that day. She was guilty of an affair and adultery. And she was given the charge that she must wear all the days of her life a scarlet letter. The letter A would be affixed to her chest as a way to show her sign of shame. Furthermore, in her punishment she was given was the job of standing on a scaffold high above the town square for three hours to expose her to public humiliation. As Hester approached the scaffold, many in the crowd were angered by her great sin. When demanding the name of the father of the child, her partner in crime, Hester refused. Hester would be known from that point on only for her sin. She was an adulterer, and would learn, and we would learn in the reading of the great story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, that her accomplice in the sinful act would have to hold, would hold out till his dying moments before he himself would admit his guilt. You see, adultery has a way of causing us to run in fear and shame. There was another man who would be given uh, the letter A for adultery. His story goes a little like this. Hanging out one night late at his house, this man would come upon one of his neighbors. He would see one of his neighbors, uh, his, his neighbor's wife, taking an evening bath. And he knew that he shouldn't be looking. He knew that it was not fitting for a man who loved and and whose heart was sold out for God to look upon such things. And it wasn't uh, his fault that he had come upon that, but he lingered. He stayed because she was far too beautiful. And his imagination with the right spark was something that was enough to ruin a man. His imagination and his hungry lust was not enough. What, what he viewed from the comfort, if you will, of his own rooftop was not enough. He had to eat of the forbidden fruit. And because he was an important man, because he got always what he desired, he went and he took her to be with him. No matter that she was another man's wife, he knew it. And that's where things start to get complicated. Yet, yes, after a night of passion, there would be an unwanted pregnancy. You see, there's consequences with every bad decision. And because of that unwanted pregnancy, there was an unproductive strategy. You see, that's what we do, isn't it? When we get caught in our sin, when circumstances come, we quickly try to figure out how can I remove myself from this sinful situation. And so he begins to try to connive and work his way to blame the pregnancy on the husband of the woman, but to no avail. And when the husband is far more upstanding than this man was, A premeditated murder is the only antidote to get rid of the sin, to cover it up once and for all. And what would transpire, we learn in the story, is once this man thinks that everything is all fine and done, the baby is about to be born, and the baby is born, and the baby is terminally ill. The baby loses its life, and the man mourns over the loss of of this baby. And his bones begin to get crushed under the agony of holding back his sin. And over and over we know that the scriptures tell us that King David, that man, uh, remained silent. He was embarrassed. He, was, he knew that, that what he had done was a great sin before God and a great sin before others. And he found himself under the weight of that terrible sin. But God in his grace would send a faithful and true man. His name was Nathan Nathan. And Nathan would come as a master storyteller and he would tell a story that had to be so eerily true in the ears of David, so real and so true. And here's the story David is told. Nathan says there's a rich man and the rich man has a wide array of flocks of of sheep, more sheep than any man could count. He had more than anybody in the whole region of the land in which they lived. And you would think that that man, that rich man, would be content with all of the sheep that he has, of all ages, of all sizes, of all value. But it wasn't enough for that rich man. And his neighbor was a poor man. His neighbor was a, a man who had a simple flock, a small flock. In fact, that, la- that flock only had one lamb. And the neighbor loved that lamb and the neighbor cared for that lamb and, and tended to it. And, 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 and his whole life in many ways revolved around that one lamb. But the rich man didn't care what the poor man had. And the rich man came and without the, uh, the poor man knowing it, stole away the man's one lamb so that he could have that lamb to add to his flock and to get rid of that man once and for all so the, man would, the rich man would not have to feel guilty the story is told that, that the rich man kills the poor man. David hears this, and David is absolutely enraged. He wants a man he wants to exact judgment on the man and Nathan, in in such prophetic words, looks to David, and I wonder if his finger was pointing. Remember, David is the king of israel he 's the most powerful man in all of the region, and all of the nation. And here, Nathan, a man, faithful to God, no doubt probably put out his finger and said, David, you're the man. You see, it's easy for us to be like David. It's easy when we hear stories of lust and and disobedience to quickly get enraged. How could someone leave their family to go pursue another one? That man is mad. How could he do that and, and be filled with rage? And what we need to hear this morning is God's word to us. You're the man. I'm the man. You're the woman. And before we start pointing our fingers to other, we must recognize this morning that it is us who are wearing the scarlet letter. We're all adulterers. Oh, maybe your adultery of your heart was done years ago. Maybe you find yourself mature in age. And, and maybe this isn't a struggle like it used to be. Recognize that and know that, 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 that your life isn't clean. Maybe, maybe as a woman, this isn't as big of a struggle. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But maybe you're, you're sitting there going, this is a guy thing. And yeah, I'm glad Tim's talking to the guys. No, let us not push this away. Let us recognize that while our lust may be different, lust is lust. We all have something to hear this morning. Jesus' words this morning, once again, are going back to the law. Last week, Jesus talked about the issue of anger. And that anger uh, against our brother without cause is, is like murder. It's no different in God's eyes. And so he's dealt with the sixth commandment. And now he moves to the seventh commandment. And notice what Jesus says. Notice the declaration that Jesus gives. That's my first point this morning. There's a declaration that Jesus gives. And Jesus gives this declaration. Now, here's the thing that I love about Jesus. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in a scenario where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. And she's flung at the feet of Jesus. And the men are ready to stone this woman, as as we always are when someone else is caught in their sin. And Jesus, the only one who could cast a stone, kneels down to the woman takes her hand and gives her the command that I have for every adulterer and every person that has struggled with lust in this place, go and sin no more. There's grace for you this morning. There's grace for me this morning. And notice, Jesus is questioned about this, and in his great sermon, he is asked, in essence, the question, well, what about the seventh commandment? Where are you at on that, Jesus? And Jesus has been giving, if you will, his uh, magnum opus as a young rabbi. He's telling the people what his teaching beliefs are. And the seventh commandment comes, and notice in verse 27, the text tells us, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery I wonder for a moment if people were all the Pharisees especially were like finally Jesus is in agreement with us yeah we haven't agreed with everything you've said Jesus but you've nailed it do not commit adultery I wonder if there was a a reprieve from the people being like oh man I can't be angry with my brother but at least I haven't in bodily form committed adultery At at least, maybe, I've been faithful in my marriage that the only person I've ever physically slept with is my spouse. And so, whew, I can take that off and I can let someone else sit under the great weight of Jesus' teaching. I wonder if there was that sense as people listen that they could say, you know what, All right, I don't have to worry about it. But notice what Jesus is doing is Jesus in the original language gives a word for word, a perfect translation For what was in the law, you shall not commit adultery. In essence, what Jesus is saying is the following. Rabbis, you've gotten this right. You've been right on. This is the truth. Jesus is articulating that they've done, in essence... They've done what they were supposed to in the sense of, yep, that's what the law says. If you, if you stuck to the strictest of interpretations, that's what the law says. But we know that that's not what the law was used for. One of the things that we know to be true, what Jesus has already articulated with regards to anger, is that killing is the worst of all our angry sins. That you really can't get any more angry than you physically going and killing someone. Would we agree with that? Okay, there's a lot of anger, but the farthest I guess you can go while all sins are equal, missing the mark in God's eyes, the most heinous thing you can do in your anger is to kill somebody. Well, Jesus likewise says the worst thing that you can do, if you will, the, the most heinous thing that you can do is break your marriage vows with your wife and, and sleep with another individual. And that, that's, that's about as bad as it is, but here's what we know about the commandments. When we studied the Ten Commandments uh, about a year ago, we learned that each of the commandments, that the Jewish people understood the commandments as an all of the below as well. Do you understand what I mean by that? That when the commandments are like, do not murder, do not uh, steal, do not um, uh, uh, commit adultery, they started at the top, and what they included were all the sins that came underneath it. So it's not the all the above, but all the below. And so what Jesus is articulating to us is not for us to be able to say, well, I haven't committed uh, physical adultery, I'm good. But what Jesus is saying is that for far too long, We've been living with the bare minimums. I had a motto when I went into school, and, and it's a motto uh, that I used to tell people all the time when, when they would ask, why don't you work harder in school? I would say, well, C's get degrees. They get degrees. A's, B's, C's, they get degrees. Let me be honest with you. D's was, my, was where I was at. D's get degrees, okay? And I didn't have to work real hard. And some of us as Christians have come to that mindset. It's terrible to have. It's terrible to have in school. It's even worse to have it in your spiritual life, where you sit there and you start cutting corners as the Pharisees did and say, really, you can do whatever you want in your heart, but as long as you don't commit physical adultery, you're all good. Everything's okay. And some of us are quickly wanting to say, you know what, I like the Pharisees' teaching on this subject, I don't like Jesus' teaching. Well, Jesus is the one that saves us. Jesus is our king. A Pharisee isn't our king. A Pharisee didn't lay down his life for us that we may receive eternal life. And Jesus says to us, I've got a word for you. And the word is is that if you think the bare minimum is that you haven't committed uh, physical adultery, then you're all good. You've got another thing coming. And what Jesus is addressing when he says, do not commit adultery, is do not commit fornication as well. Fornication is underneath adultery, if you will, because fornication is any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage. So if you find yourself dating and involved in sexual activity, that's fornication. Jesus says don't do that. It involves homosexuality and bisexuality, which is outside the confines of Scripture. It is to abstain from all sexuality that is outside the norm of the teachings of Christ and the teaching of God's Word. So before you get comfortable with the Pharisees' understanding of the law, Jesus takes it up a notch. Notice what Jesus says in verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and and just by the way, you can interchange these words, man or woman, in there. That anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that people start wondering, wait a minute, now Jesus is maybe talking about me. This is, this is something I have to work with. What is this teaching? This teaching means that my thought life matters. Jesus says, absolutely. Some of you think, well, if I'm not doing it in my body, then I'm okay. Well, the Bible says that out of the overflow of the heart, the body does things. We learned that last week, that, that the body will do what the heart is, is doing. And so just give it time. But Jesus says, even if it doesn't, Your thoughts matter to God. Your thoughts matter to your fellow brothers and sisters in this world. Your thoughts hurt people. What kind of teaching is this? What Jesus is saying is that we need to understand some issues with regards to this subject matter of lust. The first thing we need to do, write this down, is we need to define the word. We need to define the word. The word lust, sexual lust... In no other better way is to say that it's the illicit sexual buzz within the human being. I I looked long and hard for a good definition, a good working definition, and this is by far the one that I think does the best job because it leaves a level of mystery to it because we really can't define it. What part of you is the sexual part? Now, I'm not talking uh, physically, but what within you it makes us that way. What, what part of that? And that's, that's a hard thing to understand. Where, where does our sexuality begin? And we don't know. God has created us in such a multifaceted way that we don't we understand where one part begins and another part ends. And so it is that buzz, something that that's a bit mysterious to us. But notice, it is a willfully allowed, pleasurable gratification of wrongfully directed sexual desire that takes place deep inside. I want to break this down very quickly for you. First of all, notice the phrase, willfully allowed. It is something that we choose. You cannot say today, if you struggled with an issue of lust this last week, that the devil made me do it. He may have tempted you, but he didn't make you do it. You made a willful decision to allow that look to go for a little longer, for you to linger on that. Giving into it may be driven by a couple things. You may say, well, I can't help myself. Well, that may be because of habit. It may be because you've not put up right hedges in your life. But you, every time you lust, make a willful decision to do so. It's true for you. It's true for me. It's true for every man, woman, and child. Number two, it's pleasurable. We enjoy it. I I don't understand why. All I know is that God has created us to be uh, sexual beings. And because of that, he has allowed that for a reason. To share that intimacy between a husband and a wife. And I'm and I'm glad he has given that. It's a wonderful gift that God gives, and it's so wonderful. Teenagers and young people, it is worth waiting for. And yet it's something that God has given us great pleasure in. Now here's the thing it's pleasurable whether you do it in the confines of marriage, and it's pleasurable whether you're doing it in the confines of sin. Do you understand that? And and I don't understand why God's allowed that. It would have made it a whole lot easier had had the sexual uh, uh, activity not been fun unless you were married. That a light switch came on as soon as the the pastor says, uh, now you may kiss your bride, that that then it got pleasurable. But God allowed in, in his level of common grace for all people to enjoy it, whether a part of salvation or not. But here's the thing we got to be careful with it because it is a pleasurable thing. Notice it's all about our gratification. We recognize that when lust takes place, something clicks within us. Something is engaged within our hearts. While we may claim that we're not doing anything, while we may be able to fool others, we can't fool God. We are actively doing something. We're actively and willfully making a decision to allow that thought to move into action, even if it's the action of the heart and mind. Now notice this lust is, has an arena in its wrongfully directed sexual desire. We're focusing, listen to me, our attention and our desire on something that is not right. That buzz that God has created within us, that, that, that uh, feeling, that emotion, uh, that ability to enjoy uh, sex is to be found in a proper place. And that is within the marriage between a husband and as a wife. This is hard for us to accept, especially when we're in bondage to lust. Because our bodies tell us we have to have it. Our bodies, even secular uh, doctors and and, and psychologists will say that when we allow ourselves to pursue things that that, uh, allow us to lust, that something happens in the brain. Chemicals are released. These are unbelievers talking, saying something physically changes us. That we want to yearn for it more and more. And the scriptures seem to say that and have been saying that for some time. Now notice, where does this happen? It happens deep within who we are. We can't understand it fully. But something takes place. Our response is deep-seated. It's incredibly personal. And and here's the thing with lust. It occurs quickly and unmistakably. And it's sometimes long before any eternity external visible evidence is seen. And what that means is that long long before it, it comes to the outside of our body, it begins on the inside. And here's the thing, I'm glad Jesus doesn't give that definition. But Jesus with a just a simple phrase says, "If you look that which is on the inside, if you allow that look to go to lust on the outside, you've committed adultery in your heart." That's what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus, with penetrating elegance and simplicity, tells a Christian that we cannot dismiss lust, even inside the heart, as not being something that's sinful. Now there's a definition. Now let's move to a disclaimer. What is Jesus not talking about? What Jesus is not talking about is admiring someone for their beauty. The Bible does this on myriads of of occasions. The Bible says that David was a young, ruddy man. The best understanding by the most conservative scholars is the idea that ruddy literally means he was a good looking guy. And Jesus, I'm sorry, and God says that. When the Bible talks about Bathsheba, it says that she was an incredibly beautiful woman. The, the Bible admires that beauty because God is the creator of all beauty. And God had, had, had done that. And we see that over and over again that there's beauty that is to be seen. But be careful, be careful, be careful. Because what begins with admiration can lead to lust in a less than a nanosecond. And so there is a disclaimer. You can, you can say that, yeah, someone is beautiful and not lust. Someone is good-looking and not belusting. Here's what A.B. Bruce, a commentator of the scriptures, said. What Jesus is describing is not a casual look, but one that is deliberate and persistent. A desire not involuntary and momentary, but one that is cherished. One that looks again and again. Now notice he gives a description. Notice there's the definition, the disclaimer. Now let's give a description of what Jesus is talking about. He isn't talking about the first glance that's a sin, but the second one, the one that swells up on, with lust and feeds on the subject. And notice Jesus takes a judicial. He puts the judge hat on in his description. Notice what he says. Notice the tenses of the word in your Bibles. He says, I say to you, everyone who looks... That's that's present tense. They're looking at a woman with a lustful intent. There's a hunger for something. So it's the present tense. You're looking at something, and you're looking at someone, and you have a desire in your heart. Notice what he says. He condemns it, and he says, you've already, past tense, committed adultery with her in his heart. You're anticipating what it may be like, and Jesus is condemning it, saying the deed's already done. Do you understand that? And so Jesus is wanting to articulate that the sneak preview is just as guilty as the afterglow, if you will, when it's not in the right place. And so we see that this is something that is an accomplished and irreversible act in the sense of God. Robert Gulick uh, put it this way, Jesus categorically declares that a lustful desire to have another man's wife incriminates the entire person. So here's our Savior's teaching on one of the most important themes. Now, now I want to illustrate this because I know I've given you a lot of kind of head stuff with regards to this issue of lust, and so let me help you with it. And so I want you to think about something. You're a car this morning. I don't care what kind of car it is. You can be a minivan, you can be a sports car, you can be whatever you want but I want you to think about lust in this way. As a human being, you are an idling car. So, we're going to turn on our cars, and if we don't do anything, the car will run. There's an idol. That's sexual desire within each and every one of us. Just as if gasoline is running through the veins of a car, so it will run, it will idle. So, when you have blood running through your veins, there is sexual desire there. Nobody has no sexual desire. It's a part of who we are, that's how God has created us. And so, it's there, okay? Now, What lust is, is lust is taking that that idling car and putting it into gear at the wrong time. And so when that, we are to put that in gear, that car in gear, and take it for a spin, is when the pr- pastor says, now you may kiss your bride. Now, now you can go and enjoy uh, sex within the confines of marriage. But lust is, when we haven't been given that permission by God, is to put that car in gear. Now here's what we do. Just stick with me. Here's what we do. What we do as Christians, knowing we can't do that, saying, well, I just want to rev the engine. I want to hear the ponies run a little bit. They were made to run. I have these feelings. I have these desires. i got to let them run around a little bit. What we do is we put the car into gear, put our foot on the brake, and then start tapping on the gas. And what we say is, as long as my foot's on the brake, I can rev the engine. I just ain't going anywhere. And I just want to let the engine roll a little bit. And some of us are lusting right now, and we're revving that engine. Some of us have got the f- uh, gas down, and, the, and every part of us, if you've ever done this in a car, and I told the first service to do this, and I want to see you do this in the second service, go out into your cars and do that when you leave, because I don't want you to forget this illustration. Notice what the car does. The car, when the gas is pushed, is supposed to move, right? When you put the foot on the brake, the car is going to gyrate in all kinds of ways, because it has this idea, wait, you're telling me to go. You're telling me I need to do something. Well, I need to do it. And when you lust, you think, well, I've got my foot on the brake. Your body's saying, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And that's why lust always leads to more. But here's the thing. You say, well, I'm okay. I'm not moving. You're, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're all going, but you ain't moving. And here's the thing. Two things will happen. One of two things will happen. Number one, for a while, you'll sit still. But at some point, if you notice, it will get really hard. The more you push on the gas, it will get harder for you to keep the foot on the brake. And at some point, at a point you're not going to choose, your foot's going to slip off the, uh, the brake. And you're going to careen out of control because the car's going to say, it's time to go. Number two, at some point, your car's mechanism for safety, the brake system, will run out of brakes. And at some point, the brakes will give up, and the car will go, and you won't be able to stop it. And so some of us right now are sitting in the parking lot of our lives, and we're revving the gas, and I'm okay, and I'm not hurting anybody. Yeah, you're not maybe hurting anybody right now in the sense that you haven't done anything from a physical standpoint, but God says, by you playing with the gas, you're already sinning. But I haven't gone that far. Well, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Something will happen, a situation will happen, and it will be too late. And it will always not lead to just one sin. But if you look at David's life, it leads to a ton. He said, well, I'm better than that. Let me tell you, David was a man after God's own heart. You don't get better than that. And he fell. Samson, I mean, man, that, he, was a, he was a strong dude. And this blew it for him. There have been some godly men who have stood behind pulpits that I've idolized. Who have fallen to this? You don't think you can fall to it? Just give it time. Just keep revving that engine. Now, notice here is the reason why it is such a big issue for us. There is a dominance of lust today, a dominance of lust. While lust has been a formidable opponent to man throughout the ages, it seems like the battle once again is heating up. and And we got to be careful because this is what we say: it's never been any worse than this. Yeah, it has. It's been going on for years. Now, the battle may be different, but it's still there. And maybe it's some of our moral uh, relaxing, uh, if you will. Maybe it's the sexual revolution of a generation ago. But for whatever reason, the battle really sure is heating up here in America. Maybe a little more than it has before, um, you know, all at one time. I don't know. But I do know the Bible talks a lot about it, so it must have been going on in the church and, and maybe it's the ability that technology has given us to allow vehicles of lust to enter the world, but here's the thing. It seems awfully convenient for the devil in the world to bombard us with images and scenarios that make us think ungodly thoughts and turn to sin. Have you noticed that sex sells everything today? you know that? From cars to cheeseburgers and clothing, potato chips deodorant, web hosting companies. The number one right now, the number one commercial on television is a group of young men in their boxer shorts thrusting their pelvises to sell boxer underwear. It doesn't take much, men and women, for us to pursue the issue of lust. It's all around us. When, when my parents were, were, were raising us as kids, they had to worry about a, a, a billboard on, on the interstate. And my mom, I loved my mom. She would always distract us from something. Did you see the deer? God bless her. It was never a deer, and we caught on, and, and we're all going to hell. But mom tried, okay? And so, can I tell you something? My parents had it easy in comparison to what I have with my boys today. And here's why. We don't have to worry about a billboard on the interstate. We have to worry about the information superhighway. And, and we have to understand that this is probably one of the greatest enemies. While it has been one of the greatest inventions that, that man has created, and no doubt that God put in the hearts of, uh, of men to create this wonderful way to communicate, this wonderful way for the gospel to go forward, let me tell you what this internet has done for us. Globally, because of the internet, pornography is a $97 billion industry. $97 billion, $13 billion of that comes from the United States itself. 12% of all internet sites, more than 26.6 million sites are dedicated to pornography. 2.5 billion, billion with a B, emails a day are pornographically related. 25%, a quarter of all search engine requests each day from Bing, uh, AOL, Google and Yahoo search engines are pornographic in nature 25 that means one out of four people are going to those search sites looking for pornography Seventy percent of all 18 to 24 year old men visit pornographic sites in a typical month 70 percent 66 percent of men in their 20s and 30s also report being regular users of pornography now let's get down to well wait a minute That's the world What about the church? Surveying evangelical churches, 70% of men, 70% of Christian men, and 47% of women, 70 men, 47 women, admit to struggling with pornography in their daily lives. Now you say, okay, Tim, that's a lousy, that's a, they had a bad sample. So let's reduce that, let's take it by half. That means 35% of men and uh, 23% of women struggle. Well, that's still one in five and one in three. They admit to dealing with this. 48% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women admit to having an addiction to pornography. These are real statistics as of the first part of 2013. Now, here's the thing you say, well, Tim, not at Village Bible Church. We are not an average evangelical church. Yeah, we are. Our giving is average, our attendance is average. Our involvement in the church is average. So why in the world would we push this away and say, this isn't true statistics of what's going on in this room today? We've got a problem. And we've got a problem that is not, and listen to me, right away, and I've had some ladies say, well, we didn't need to talk about this because ladies don't struggle with this stuff. They don't, this is a guy thing, and we beat up guys all the time. How many guys have gone to retreats and heard this talked about? Right? Every time guys get together, this subject is talked about, and rightly so. Rightly so. This is something that's tearing up men. But let me tell you something. Uh, You're going to say that women don't struggle with this? I'm going to disagree with you wholeheartedly, and here's my reasoning. Number one, just look at the magazines that women are buying. They're buying in the checkout aisles in grocery stores. They don't talk about sex. They're not all about issues of lust. You better believe they are. If, if, If women don't struggle with lust then who in the world is reading the nearly 100 million copies of Fifty Shades of Grey? 100 million. The best-selling book of 2012 and 13. You don't think that women struggle with lust? Let's never forget that Walmart never gives floor space to things that don't sell. And I went into Walmart this week. It was a scientific study. And an entire half an aisle, half of an aisle of our leading American worldwide re- retailer gives half an aisle to fantasy romance novels. Can I tell you guys, I don't think we're the ones buying that stuff. You don't have enough for that to prove that that's an issue? I can assure you that it wasn't men who spent $113 million this summer to see the movie Magic Mike, a life about male strippers. You don't think women, women... Everybody's, the ladies always say I take it easy on ladies during the sermons. We struggle with it, ladies. We do. It's different. It's different. I get it. It's different. But listen to the words of, of a Joel, Jonah Lynn Fincher from Christianity Day magazine who says, In the Middle Ages, priests informed the lady that it was the women who were naturally more lustful and insatiable and visually stimulated. Can you imagine that? Women were the sexually charged ones. Male, the cel- celibate priest taught, were the naturally spiritual and rational ones. I like that. How times have changed. Now listen to what she says. Ladies, understand in our Christian subculture, men are continually told that they alone are the visually stimulated and carnal ones. In the book, Every Woman's Battle, it is said that women only give sex to get love. That is not true, Joel Lynn says. In the book, For Men Only, Sean T. and Jeff Feldhan, I think I'm saying that right, say this to men, your body, no matter how much of a stud you think you are, does not turn the physical, the physical body of a woman on. Here's what Jonah Lynn says, as a woman, I beg to disagree 100%. A man's body does turn a woman on. Ask any woman how she feels in an in a Abercrombie and Fitch store with all those young men barely wearing anything. Or ask the bride in the Song of Solomon, who says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I take great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now you may say, women, that once the honeymoon is over, and once you've got kids and you're sleep deprived, that no woman sustains this kind of attraction to sex, not long term. And that's why, she goes on to say, Playboy sells more than Playgirl. That's why men struggle with porn and women don't. Well, I have news for you. The most contemporary and most up-to-date internet filter review from ChristianityToday.com documents that 70% of Christian women keep their cyber activities secrets. Women's attraction to the male body is a widely experienced but little publicized reality. And because of that, women stay in the shadows instead of getting the freedom that only Christ can bring. That's not from me, that's from a woman. And so what we need to learn in this dominated by lust world is lust is something that impacts young and old, male and female, and sadly it seems like we're losing the battle. So what do we do? Our society tells us that looking doesn't hurt. And that it's harmless and no one has to get hurt. I'm going to tell you, you're getting hurt. Your relationship with God is getting hurt. And when you're getting hurt and your relationship with God is getting hurt, the next thing that will get hurt are your relationships. Whether they're your spouse or your friends or your family, others will get hurt. And notice there's a downward spiral to lust. Notice, and stick with me, I'll move quickly with this. The Bible says, I'm sorry, the world says that you can dream and fantasize about whatever you like. And as long as you aren't infringing on someone's rights, then have fun. The Bible tells us that that thinking is absolutely moronic. It's it's from the devil. It isn't logical. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about the issue of sex and lust. He says, in its proper place, sex is like a fire in a fireplace for all of people to enjoy, to receive heat from, to be admired. But when fire is taken out of its proper place, the fireplace, it will only bring great harm to all those around it. And some of us right now are playing with fire. The Bible addresses it this way. Can a man or woman scoop fire into their laps and not be burned? The answer is no. You're always going to get burned. You're always going to get burned. You're always going to get burned. You're looking at stuff, you're always going to get burned. You're thinking stuff, you're always going to get burned. It's just a matter of time. Lust always demands a price. It is said that like all sin, lust will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will always cost you more than you want to pay. James 1, 14, and 15 tell us that it begins with deception. And some of us are deceived right now that we think what we are consuming is absolutely harmless. Amanda and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago when I was writing the small group curriculum for this week's lesson. And, and I was thinking, I'm like, what, how, how to prove the subtlety of... Uh, Uh, of of lust and amanda loves christmas and and loves these christmas movies okay and uh she was watching she loves the hallmark channel hallmark man hallmark heavenly okay no it's not we were watching a hallmark christmas movie i know i gotta turn in my man card for that guys but you sacrifice in your marriage and and by the time we were done watching that movie by the time you're done A woman can totally have given her heart to the male figure in that movie because he is sweeping the woman in the movie off her feet. And I will tell you, Tim, don't do what Hallmark Channel does with a man. In fact, I'll be honest with you, the things that those guys do in the movies, I don't know any red-blooded man that does those things. And it's easy for us, just as those fantasy uh, uh, magazines, to to begin to ask the question, well, why doesn't my husband do that, or why doesn't my wife do that? And what we're feeding is a lust for other people to do things for us that our spouses or our future spouses may not do. It's deceiving. It looks good. The The Bible says that the devil masquerades as an angel of light. And so lust can quickly move from deception and notice it will lead to disobedience. It always leads to disobedience. What starts in the heart will inevitably come out. And you wonder why we do the things we do? It started in the heart. It wasn't that you made one bad decision. David made a dozen bad decisions before he ever looked at Bathsheba. Do you know that? Read the text. And with an investigative mind, say, what are you doing at home while your army's out at war? A king goes with his army. And David's sitting there strolling. A man should be sleeping in the middle of the night. He shouldn't be strolling around on his rooftop. And David made a myriad of mistakes. David had already taken on so many wives. He wasn't supposed to do that. God had condemned him for that. And David still did that. David had made terrible decisions long before Bathsheba's out there bathing. And some of us are not dealing with our heart. And something is going to come at the right time, in the right place, when you feel neglected, when you feel abused, when you feel like you're not getting your way. And at the right time, the devil's going to sit there and say, all right, I'm going to show you what disobedience looks like. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And notice in the book of Proverbs, just write this passage down, Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7 tells us this. Talking about lust, a a young man is pursuing an adulterous woman, a prostitute. And it says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Now, what happens? All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. You know what the Bible says happens after we are deceived and disobey? The the book of James says it leads to death. Listen to what happens to this young man. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver as the bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that lust will cost you your life? Let not your heart turn aside from her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You think you're having fun? Wait till it kills you. Wait till it kills your marriage. Wait till it kills your reputation. Wait till it kills your opportunity to do ministry. Wait till it kills you, and it will kill you all at once, and it will drive you crazy the amount of times it will kill you over and over and over and over again. So what do we do? Some of us are on a collision course towards disaster. And the reason why we preach even the hard things, this is an uncomfortable sermon to preach. I, I, I told the, the first service, the only thing that would make it more uncomfortable is if my mom was here. Okay? And the sad thing is, Josue's going to teach at the Campus Español, and his mom is going to be there. Okay? So pray for that boy, all right? But Psalm 119 says that what you have in your hands is what will be able to keep a young man and a young woman pure. God's given you the antidote for lust. And so notice a couple of things as I walk away from this. A couple of things we need to understand. There is deliverance that sets us free. Yeah, there's a downward spiral, but the gospel brings life. It brings deliverance, and, the, and it brings deliverance to lust. And so how do we deal with it? Well, Jesus tells us in our text there's a painful action that needs to take place. Notice it. He says, hey, if you got this issue, then if your right eyes cause you sin, gouge it out. If your right hand's causing you sin, then cut it off. And, and the quickly, we have to ask the question, is he speaking literally or spiritually? Well, let's take the literal side for, for a moment. Uh, Origen, an early church father, was reported to have castrated himself because he was tired of dealing with lust. The church council at Nicaea leaves a couple uh, statements regarding the practice of castration in fighting off lust. It says, don't do it. And so it must have been an active process where they had to, as a church council, speak against it. And here's why it isn't your privates that cause you to sin. Okay? And so getting rid of them isn't going to fix anything. Because the human heart is deceitful. It is sick above all things. Who can understand it? And so it's the human heart. We need to change our heart. And so what Jesus says is, hey, if if, you're, if something's causing you to sin, let me let me make it clear. If your computer's causing you to sin, get rid of it. If your phone is causing you to sin, get rid of it. If the television is causing you to sin, then throw it away. If If a relationship is causing you to sin, then end the relationship. If a book or a magazine is causing you to sin, no matter how noble you think it is, then get rid of it. It'd be better that you be maimed, Jesus says, than go to hell. This is real business, folks. Churches are impacted by this every day because great men and women have not heeded the words of Jesus and done the hard stuff. Some of you are unwilling to get serious with God. And do the hard things. I am sometimes not willing to do the hard things to keep me from sin. It is a painful action. Do the spiritual surgery that needs to be done. Finally, there's a proper avenue. So there's a painful action and there's a proper avenue. Scripture talks about this over and over again. And I don't have a lot of time to do so. But there's a proper avenue towards deliverance. Here's, here's some. We're just going to quickly go through them. Write these passages down as homework. Number one. When the Bible talks about lust and sexual temptation, it has a singular word for it and, and I'm just going to give you one passage, 1 Corinthians 6:18. And here's the passage. This is what it says. When temptation comes your way, sexual morality comes your way, you need to act like men, stand strong, and you will do just fine. Be a man, be a woman. You don't have to fall for that stuff, right? Is that what the Bible? No, the Bible says run like a little girl. You can't handle it. You're never going to win it on your own. So run for your life. Be Joseph in Potiphar's house. Run and do whatever you have to to get away from that thing that is causing you to head to hell. Get rid of it. Run away from it as fast as you can. Number two, rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says, When we are walking and are filled with the Spirit, we will not gratify the sinful nature. Here's the best illustration for it. You will not long for food. Let me tell you how it is for me. I will not long for potato chips and junk food if I've just finished a prime rib dinner. And some of us are saying, well, I can't help myself. I can't help myself. Well, are you feasting on the things of God? Are you eating the good of God? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? The reason why we taste and see that the Lord is good is we're able to distinguish the bad. And some of us don't know the good cooking that Jesus is offering us. And so we're just hungry for anybody who will offer us food. And so you need to be in God's Word. You need to be focusing in on the things of God, relying on His Spirit. And then the Scripture says we are to renew our minds on godly things. Romans 12, 2 says don't conform, don't fit the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Make a conscious decision this week. I am not going to look at that stuff. I'm not going to read that stuff. I'm not going to think on those things. I'm going to transform my mind under the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you do, You still may fail. There still may be failures. And Jesus says, Repent of your sins. Write that somewhere. I didn't even tell Dennis that was on there. Repent of your sins. God, I'm sorry. God, I don't want to do this evil thing. God, I I don't want to turn away from you and pursue wicked things. I know it will lead to my destruction. Please forgive me. I know this is why Jesus went to the cross. For sins like this, please forgive me. And the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, including this one. How about for married couples? My word is very simple. Be romantic often. The Bible says in First Proverbs fifteen that we are not to pursue. I'm sorry, First Proverbs five fifteen tells us not to pursue uh, sexual relations with any and all that will come our way, but that we are to literally, it says in very poetic language, drink from our own cisterns. That the wives of our youth should satisfy us. He even uses very visual terminology. That the breasts of our wives should satisfy us. That's a good word. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 through 5 it's not good for us to just give our bodies to everybody to have sex with them. And so because there is so much sexual temptation out there, each man should have his own wife and each wife should have her own husband. And what he says then is the following, be romantic often. What he says is nobody should be depriving each other of their conjugal rights, of their, of their sexual rights. That the man's body is not his own, but it's the wife's. And the wife's body is not her own, it's the husband's. We need to be sharing in that. You want your husband, or, uh, wives, you want your husband to not be so tempted to other stuff? Then, then fulfill your husband's desires. And husbands, be real about that desire. And wives, the same thing. There's desires there. And we need to be satisfying them as husbands and wives. It needs to be happening often. It needs to be going on in a way that's pleasing to our spouses. And finally, my final point this morning is we need to get real with our kids. My, my son, 10 years of age, um, is starting to learn about some of this stuff. And he's been learning it at, on, a, on a progressive uh, way. And even my eight-year-old is beginning to learn these things. And in my conversation with my son, I started to talk. He says, Dad, he says I, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. And God bless him. He says, I've heard it all. I've heard it all. <clears throat> God bless him, okay? I said, probably what you've heard is probably all wrong, son. So let's just go over it again. But here's the thing. Your kids are hearing it. Your kids are hearing. You say, well, Tim, you're in public school. My kids are in a private school. They're hearing it at private school. Well, my kids are homeschooled. I know they're not hearing. They're hearing it, okay? And if we got real and we were to ask our kids, they, they would tell us a lot more than we want. And maybe you've been lucky enough to protect them. They're going to hear it. And so this is the thing. Start getting real with them start getting real. You be talking about God's intention for sex. Don't let other people talk to them about it. You tell them. And so when they see the counterfeit, they know the real thing. And they know that what the world is pursuing is evil and what God is giving is good. The best thing you can tell your children is sex is great. It's great. The best thing my father and my youth pastor taught me was, it is awesome, and I'm here to tell you, yes, it is. But here's the thing, it's only great when it is in God's proper channels. And so we need to announce that to our kids, not hide it from them, so that they wonder, well, there's something there I it, and I, everybody's talking about it, but not my parents and some of you, and some of you are not telling your kids these things, and you are hurting them spiritually. You're hurting them. Here's the other thing that we're doing. As a family with three boys, I am going to, I'm going to have on my internet not one, not two, but 5,000 filters We'll never be able to search for a thing on our computers. Don't ever come looking for a map for anything because you just ain't going to get it at the Badal house. And some of us right now, listen to me, as a pastor, I say this with all sincerity. You've allowed every adult video, every adult bookstore, every adult thing into your lives. And you say, I've never been into a place like that before. If you've got an internet that has no filters, you're doing it. And your kids are running upon it, and you don't know. And here's the thing that you need to know about this generation of kids. They know far more about computers than you ever will. And you need to help them. And so that means what your church is going to do for you is this week, probably tomorrow morning, you are going to get a bevy of resources that you need to. The best thing you can buy your kids and your family this Christmas is an internet filter put it on there, have someone come over and put the password in because you won't trust yourself and just put it in there and be done with it. It'll be the best thing you ever did for your kids. Your kids will come back, their wives and their husbands in the future will thank you for that day that they don't have people that have run amok with all that garbage of the world. Folks, let's get this fixed. Let's work on this. Let's be a transparent place. Many of us have fallen and God's grace is there, but we need to live out God's grace as his hands and feet to help one another to be the best believers we can be, even in the area of lust. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I plead with you to protect your people from this terrible disease. Lord, we have seen so many in our world run away from God for the things of this world. And Lord, I pray that none of us would be the ones to fall. Lord, pray, I pray for myself. Lord, I am so flawed. Lord, I am so selfish. that I am willing at times, even in my own wicked heart, to leave everything that I love and know to be good and true for the things that will make Tim feel better. And Lord, if I'm the preacher of this group, i got to believe that there are others that are feeling that way as well. Protect us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, let us do the hard stuff this week to be changed so that we may glorify you. We may honor you. We may please you in every good way, even in our thoughts, our private thoughts and desires. Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit. Make us new. Challenge us in our thinking. Challenge us with what we watch and what we read. Lord, encourage us and convict us to be able to turn away from that stuff and to turn to you. Lord, for those that find themselves neck deep in this, Lord, I pray that they would find the courage to talk with someone. That, Lord, the person that they talk to would be trustworthy that would not condemn but would bring love and grace and and even the hard truths that there are consequences to sin but, but that they can be overcome by the grace of Almighty God. Lord, let us be real. Let us be true. Let us live out your sermon on the mount so that we may truly be your followers, not just in the external but even to the core of who we are in the heart. Now, Lord, send us forth from this place. We've gone a little longer, Lord. I pray that it has been productive for our people. And, Lord, that we would leave changed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.